0: On this episode of UAP Studies, today we have Christopher Cogswell, PhD in chemical engineering. Now his name sounds like a Bond villain. He's also the host of Mad Scientist podcast, and he's also joined recently Skyhub, which is what this podcast is about, and to talk to Christopher about his involvement with Skyhub, what Skyhub is, and how important it is for the uh, UAP researcher community to get involved and really support these guys and you'll find out why so christopher thank you so much for giving me some of your time today how are you sir
1: i'm doing well yeah thank you for having me on always happy to come uh talk about what i'm doing and what i'm into
0: when did you join skyhub
1: so i joined skyhub that's actually a really good question when did i join skyhub um i joined skyhub um sometime like in the early summer is when i first joined skyhub so i think there was a um, there was an official release about it uh, about me kind of joining the team and everything else on July 12th. so that's kind of when I officially joined, but I had been talking to the team a little bit before that too um, you know thinking about kind of ways that we could work together and if I thought I would be a good contributor or not and you know frankly if I thought it'd be a good fit. so yeah it's been it's been it's been a while now though since July.
0: And when we're saying, okay, so you're a a chemical engineer, what other branch of science is working in this group?
1: Yeah, sure. So yeah, it's it's a really good question. So currently, if you look on kind of the main team page for us here, we have Steve McDaniel, who is a founder and is our lead software developer. Uh, He is, uh, yeah, software, um, kind of building the source code and everything else that's kind of related to that. We have Corey Gaspard, who's also a co-founder, lead web developer in DevOps. He's also kind of software uh, programming, those sorts of things. We have uh, Adam Allen on the team who is our legal affairs. He's a lawyer. Um, myself, obviously we have Richard Hopf, who's kind of a just general generalist engineer, um, helping with hardware design and fabrication. We have David Moore an audio engineer and uh, helping us with science communications. Um, we have, uh, various other people in the chat right now with us. We have, um, you know, meteorologists, physicists, um, we have, uh, folks who are involved in machine learning and data analysis and sort of uh, database design and handling and big data analytics, uh, you know, kind of pipeline building and those sorts of things. Um, And the team is always growing, but, you know, in terms of, I guess, what we would consider to be our core team, it is sort of us, you know, about about 10 to 12 people who are kind of the core team. And then um, other folks who kind of come in and out of the chat and help us and help us develop and think of problems and and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the team is, um, it is an effort of love. Uh, we're doing this in our free time, you know, uh, before jumping on here today, I was writing an article um, for Skyhub that we're going to publish soon. You know, um, it's kind of, we're all giving up our own free time. So the folks that we have working with us and working alongside us are also giving up their free time. And, you know, we're just, we're just super thankful to have them on board.
0: Now that we've covered the type of people that work on this program, maybe explain to us what Skyhub is and what it does.
1: Sure. So Skyhub really is a effort to gather and disseminate open source data about the skies above us in a way that hasn't been possible or tried before. Now, obviously, we're talking about it here because we're all hoping that we'll capture, you know, uh, a UAP. You know, we're all hoping we'll capture some kind of ship flying or something cool. You know, but the effort itself in general is to build a software that, when used alongside easily obtainable hardware and kind of parts that anyone can put together themselves will allow you to basically put outside of your home or, you know, we have one on top of a car now, (laughs) thanks to Jeremy. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: You know, we have them uh, kind of all over the place at this point, but, you know, the goal basically is to have a unit that you can stick outside, let it run, um, you know, all day, all year, just kind of hanging out outside. And when it captures an object in the sky, it will automatically start recording and then it will upload that data to the cloud for someone to analyze later. Now that's kind of, that's where we are right now. That that process works now. The ultimate goal is to have on top of that initial kind of method, which is which is relatively, I don't want to say simple, because you'd be amazed at how much code there has been going into it so far. But um, to do the more complicated task, which is, not only kind of collecting and, and noticing that there's an object in the sky that should be tracked, but when an object appears, identifying it. Or if it can't be identified, marking that, that video as something interesting for someone to look at. So in other words, um, you know, it's one thing to just have a camera sitting outside all day that just takes photos of the sky every time, you know, a bird flies by or whatever, right? That's just sort of a normal security camera what we're trying to do is more complicated than that, which is when a object comes into frame, um, breaking down that image frame by frame and by applying metrics to it and some, you know, kind of math and other sorts of things there, some other sensor input and everything else that you can then say, this is something, um, this is a bird. This is a, this is an airplane. This is a military craft. This is a drone. This is, you know, a bug, whatever. Um, and if none of those answers work, if none of those kind of silos that we expect work saying, okay, well now we have something interesting to look at.
0: Now is this done automatically by the system or is that something that you have to analyze after the fact?
1: So the goal is to have this be done automatically by the system. And you'd be surprised at how, I don't want to say how, simple it is because it's not simple but I guess I'll say is I think you would be surprised how much you know a handful of very <laughs> determined programmers <laughs> can get at building something like this because so if you think about it right um when our when if you were gonna tell the difference between say an airplane and a a bird
0: right? What would you look for? Uh, Wings, flapping, and contrails, yeah.
1: So flapping, contrails, um, maybe size, right? relative size. You don't expect an airplane to be super close to your camera, but a bird, maybe. Right? A bird might be close to your camera. You'd probably look for things like uh, markings as well, right? So like defined features. Like you said, the wings flapping, right? That's a physical thing that we, we would probably be looking for. But you might also look for things like coloration. Are there lights? Are there right? All these other different sorts of things. If you start thinking about some of those things, some of those are easy or relatively easy for a computer to pick out um, versus another sort of image. So for example, um, you don't expect a bird to um, like you said, have a contrail, right? That's something that we can train the system to say, okay, you see a contrail then it must be non-animal must be some kind of airplane or something like that. Right. But we can even go simpler than that. We can simply say, okay, we have a bounding box of an object, and that bounding box appears to show um, wings, and those wings on an airplane are in a certain proportion to the length of the body than they are, say, on an animal, right? than, say, like a duck or a, or a goose or whatever. Um, that is also something relatively simple for a computer to do very quickly and analyze, um, faster than even you could do it maybe to output that data to say this is a plane versus this is a bird so those are the sorts of things we're looking for are kind of very simple but very i guess i'll say distinctive um metrics that we can use to delineate between these objects
0: when we do investigation somebody says hey i seen you know these lights above my house we usually do like a google and i say we just investigators if they you know, look at the case, they'll, they'll figure out what the person was, figure out what the light was, and then, at you know, you could enter the time in flight radar, 24 something, uh, you can actually find out there was a, an airplane flying over your house and even the tag of the plane. Is that something that is capable with, with SkyHub in the future? Yep,
1: absolutely. So using um, a tool called FlightAware Aware. We can basically say in a given GPS coordinate zone, where there airplanes in the sky at the time of this sighting? And if so, um, you know, that would be, say, one of a number of things on a checklist to say this is most likely an airplane versus say this is being most likely something else. So, yes, that's absolutely possible.
0: Yeah, no, the math part, the fact that the computer system does all the math is great because math is not we're not friends. Uh, My, my dad used to say there's three kinds of people, people who can count and people who can't (laughs) (laughs) man. You know,
1: it's so funny. I think, I think math gets a bad rap. I love math personally. It is my favorite. Uh, it was, it was my, went from my least favorite course in, uh, in high school to my favorite course in college and then continues has just been kind of a, a continuous love now since then. And, um, You know, the thing that's so funny with math is I think we sort of teach it backwards to students so that, you know, the stuff that's really useful for folks today um, isn't, isn't really what we teach. It's kind of a weird thing. Anyways, I could go on a whole diatribe about math and <laughs> what how we should be teaching it and everything else.
0: If if I had a teacher like you that would say, "Oh, okay, he doesn't understand this. I'll teach him like cuz, you know, still today, like I I would love to work in something, you know, science related. I can't do math.
1: <laughs> well, okay. Well, let's 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 take a let's take a really simple example right from SkyHub. So, one of the things we'll be looking at, and it's actually I think going to be probably our most important initial metric. this is one that I think is going to be kind of the um, the defining bucket frankly, but again, when you're designing a system like this, you don't want to you don't want to over you don't want to put in assumptions that you yourself are making you know so for example, I could say that maybe I think a UAP will be you know a glowing orange orb or something. Um, If I then tell my system to throw away all cases that aren't orange orbs, I'm probably in trouble. (laughs) That's that's not good investigation. Um, But so, for example, let's say you have a – one of the most common thought about or at least theorized characteristics of a UAP event Mm -hmm. is non-ballistic motion. And so, what I mean by that is, the object appears to accelerate and decelerate very quickly. It appears to kind of change direction without any um, friction or any kind of you know drag from the air. This thing just seems to kind of it just seems to bob all over the place, right?
0: Air disturbance. Yeah. If
1: you were going to try and describe that to a computer, one way to do it would be: okay, the computer can tell. On a two- so when it, when a computer gets say, a visual representation of the sky, which is what SkyHub is doing, right? It's taking an image. It takes in frames, so kind of still pictures, and then puts them together to make a make a, a video, right? Make kind of a, a video from the camera. In each of those frames, you can say, okay, I want to treat my objects as if they are just points. So in other words, an airplane and a UAP, they're both just kind of you know black dots on a blue background or on a dark background. Does that make sense? Okay. Now imagine the airplane from frame to frame. If you were to take it as a video, you expect the airplane to be traveling pretty much in a straight line path, right? Because a plane, like it it can turn and stuff, but it, it has limits to what it can physically do in the sky. So you'd imagine then that if we took a thousand videos of airplanes and we kind of took the starting position of the airplane and the ending position of the airplane across a set number of frames of video that the airplanes were seeing would pretty much end up going in a straight path. And I bet they would have a pretty limited range of speed or distance. They travel over a certain number of frames, right? So in other words, on the screen itself, how many pixels does that does that plane travel in say, 10 seconds of video? Right? So we can actually then by doing all that kind of what we're doing there is statistics, right? We're gathering this data. We're also doing a little bit of, of applied mathematics by applying um, a numerical system to this physical object we're viewing what we can then do is kind of build up a library that says, okay, well, if you see, a, if you treat these objects as black dots, if the black dot moves within, you know, plus or minus 15 pixels per second of this speed, um, and it moves in a straight line path, then it's probably an airplane. On the other hand, a UAP we might expect um, would have a very huge range of speed. Right? So, if you get one, maybe it's going super slow. Maybe one's going very, very quickly. You'd also expect them not to be moving in straight line paths, right? You'd expect them between, you know, kind of frame to frame um, to be bumping around all over the place, right? So very quickly, it becomes really easy for a computer to say, ah, so that this is what a normal object looks like. This is what something that's a little bit abnormal looks like. And so, That's really what we mean when we talk about machine learning is creating a system with these sorts of relatively simple inputs that it can get from just the camera or just the sensors or just whatever, that then we can build a big data set to say every airplane that we've seen in 100 days looks like this. Every bird we've seen in 100 days looks like this. Every bug looks like this. Every drone looks like this, etc. And by continuing to kind of build that data set, the number of events we capture to test against um, our, our system, our machine that's been learning um, gets better and better. Right. So, so you've just done and everyone listening has just done very complicated mathematics (laughs) and you didn't have to know, you didn't have to know anything about triangles. Isn't it wonderful, right? What a great, what a great (laughs) time for all of us.
0: Can it, spot something coming out of let's say a location i had uh, an incident where a craft emerged out of the river at mach 3.2 straight from underneath the river out of the river at an angle upwards at that speed could that system skyhub could that capture it so
1: that is a because you gave a physical because you gave a number it's a little i, I don't want to say exactly right now because frankly, I don't have the specifications of the cameras in front of me. What I, but because what I mean is like we said, the camera takes images, you know, the camera has basically like a shutter speed, right? Or, or how often it it takes uh, an image of the surroundings to then turn into the video. It is feasible. I suppose that an object could be moving quickly enough that you, you don't capture it on a camera, but I think it would have to be moving. That's so first off, that's frankly why we are including other things besides simple cameras. We're including things like, you know, sensors for things like say sound, right? So an object moving in Mach three would make a tremendous sound. Um, One would expect, right? It's why we're including not things, these buggers. Maybe not, maybe not. Right. But that's, that's why we're including other kinds of sensors. Um, but what I would say, actually, it is a really good question, though. So currently, the, the currently the camera we use or the camera we're looking at are um, are IP cameras. So they're basically um, basically fisheye cameras. But eventually, what the goal is is you have not only these fisheye cameras, but also very high fidelity, high um, kind of high sampling speed uh, PZT cameras. So those cameras, I would expect to be able to capture something like this. Um, But then again, if something is say emerging from, you know, the goal here is never going to be to have, let me, let me reframe this, I guess a little bit. I think one of the biggest problems that this subject has had for a long time, and it's a, it's a problem that other sciences have kind of, you know, if we want to think that, that UFOlogy could become a science, um, the problem I think has always been that we rely on individual cases or individual sightings. And unless you get intensely lucky and kind of capture lightning in a bottle. And so someone has a camera pointed at that river at the exact right moment, that's just not a good way to do investigations and at least not large scale investigations The example I often give is imagine that instead of searching for UFOs, you decided, you know, you and your team decided that you'd want to search for, I don't know, the causes of heart attacks. And so, you know, how many cases do you think you see a year? Thousands. Probably like thousands, right? Okay. So imagine, though, even with thousands of cases, right, I ask you, what do you think the cause of heart disease is? really, why do people have heart attacks? That's, it's it's not a question you can answer with just even thousands of cases a year, right? You need to build a sample. You need to get a large data set. You need to control for things. You need to start looking for these, right? So, you know, it's, I guess the example I would give is we're focusing on individual cases. It's the same thing as saying to a doctor, you know, I know a guy who had a heart attack and he had a heart attack because, you know, I don't know, he saw a scary movie. Do you think, the the vast majority of heart attacks are caused by scary movies. The answer is no, right? That's an individual case. Um, and it's a rare case. And I, I would argue that UFO events or UAP sightings are probably rare events, right? They're probably uh, rare compared to the population. So anyways, all of that aside, um, the goal would be in that situation where you have something emerging from a river, that in the area there are other cameras that can also capture the same event. So in other words, there's a camera maybe, you know, a mile away from that river. There's another camera 10 miles away. There's another camera, you know, 10 miles away from that one. There's, right, there's a, a bunch of these units there so that even if the one camera misses it, others will capture it, and then we can kind of backtrack to say, okay, well, there seems to be, you know, 15 SkyHub units that have seen something weird in the same area on the same day at the same time that's something really interesting
0: as as far as the power of the unit how, how do you power the unit can you have it stand like on a mountain or do you need to have a power source like at a house
1: yeah so currently so so first off let me say SkyHub is still in really early alpha development you know we're we're not um we're not done by any means. So the current units, as they exist now, um, they have uh, power. You know, they need to be powered by a power outlet or a power source. We've been thinking about doing things like you know, solar powered or battery or whatever. Um, that would still require some some human intervention occasionally. You know, solar panels um, get snowed on, and uh, batteries need to be recharged or replaced, and all those other things. But the goal would be to be able to build units that can kind of exist on their own. So, but, but we're still trying to think about this, right? Um, right now where we're focusing is people put units on their homes, on their own land, where they have access to an internet, an internet connection and a power source. It's a great question though. I mean, it's some you know, it's the obvious extension, right? It's like, if we're going to have these things, wouldn't it be awesome to be able to put, you know, if you're an investigator, wouldn't it be cool to be able to just put one out there in the forest someplace where you think there are sightings happening or on a mountain or whatever, right? Like it makes sense to think about and want to maybe consider those options, Um, you know, but really, again, we're sort of trying to focus on, I mean, this is true of any kind of engineering project. You try to focus on what you can accomplish in the short term, right? So that's kind of what we're looking at right now.
0: Well, I like the fact that you mentioned one of your co-workers has one on his car, because if you're know you you're an investigator and you can actually have a, even a trailer where you can mount something on top, like a camping trailer, and you just mount mm-hmm. that thing on the top and you can camp for the night, the box does all the work, unless you want to stay out and you know stargaze, but I like that, I think. That's uh does it look like R2D2? Like how does it look on this car? Does it look <laughs> completely stupid? Like <laughs> it,
1: it looks it looks kinda like a um I guess it kind of looks like R2D2 a little bit because of the fisheye. You know, these things they're not they're not super big. And again, here's the thing too. We're we're not making any money like selling stuff or selling these to people. Um we're we're not we don't we don't produce the cameras, we don't produce the hardware. We produce the software, and the software is being given away for free. All the development costs and all of that is from Patreon and from donors, frankly, who have who want to see this happen and have given us money to develop this project. The um, So, you know, what my Skyhub looks like looks way differently than what, you know, Jeremy's Skyhub looks like or what Steve's Skyhub looks like or, you know, whoever. That being said, they're all about the same size, which is like, you know, maybe – I don't know, maybe like a foot by two foot, foot by a foot, something like that, right? They're not huge, like you know, size of a football, size between a football, say, and like a laptop,
0: right? Oh, so they're they're not huge. They're not huge. They're. I kind of had thick. that impression from like the, the pictures that you know it looked at least like the size of a desk, but I guess that's no, not no, big no, are.
1: no, no. Oh my god, that's because we that's because of where we have that uh pictures out there like on the salt flats. It looks like right, so it's like really hard to gauge. We need to put like a ruler next to there or something or a banana, but (laughs) yeah, no, it's not, it's not, um, it's
0: not about the size of the Skyhub box guys. Okay. It's how you use it.
1: If someone really wanted to, you could build a Skyhub unit that's huge and super expensive and, you know, has telescopic lenses attached and all this other stuff. Like you, you could get kind of crazy with it and build something really, really, uh, really, really impressive. But you can also kind of do what I did, which is I have a pretty, I, I my units, uh, my Skyhub unit is is relatively um, simple looking. It's you know a Jetson Nano attached to a UPS uh, UPS don- or sorry GPS dongle through a USB uh, with a fisheye camera attached and a couple of sensors, you know. But my my uh, unit is you know like I said probably about. I don't know, a foot by a foot by maybe, you know, five inches uh, tall.
0: And as far as maintenance on these things, what are we looking at?
1: So currently, so, okay. Currently the software is still, like I said, in really early alpha. So anyone who wants to build one right now, um, we suggest you should be. And, and again, <laughs> the amount of technically capable you need to be is not particularly high, Um, I am a notorious destroyer of computers. I am not good with them. I do not know what I do, but they do not like me. Um, (laughs) Just not good with the things, you know, but I was able to build my, I was able to put my unit together. It really is as simple as sort of following, you know, following instructions on the internet to plug some cords into another thing. And then, you know, once that happens, there's a little bit of playing around. So the Jetson Nano platform comes preloaded essentially with like a instance of linux there's a little bit of software updating and stuff like that that has to happen but we have a we have a how-to to run you through it and the team is always available to help you know anytime basically um but yeah you know you don't you don't need to be particularly technically capable to to put one of these together or to get it running
0: is there future talks of maybe doing a phone app as well
1: So we have talked about and with other groups who are doing things like say a phone app or who are uh, doing other sorts of investigative uh, platforms or things like that to kind of connect all the tools together. You know, I think the important thing is to have everyone play together nicely. And even if we don't necessarily, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely someone in the community, I think, who's, who's considered much more of a skeptic than others, but, you know, at the end of the day, that's sort of, in terms of sharing data or collecting data, I think skepticism or, you know, your views on an individual case or whatever, they're kind of moot, right? Because, you know, these are new cases, like who knows? <laughs> we have no idea. So the goal is to really share as much information and have as much uh, cooperation amongst groups as possible so that we can really get the most out of this. So yeah, there has been some talk though about like, maybe a, so. The first thing we're hoping to tackle is, frankly, a, a easier installer so that people who want to build one of these things can then just go right to our um, website, install the software onto their unit, and then have it install itself and run perfectly. Now we're actually pretty close to that happening already. Um, compared to when I started the install, the install is a lot cleaner now than it was. Um but yeah, it's definitely so that's kind of the first thing but then eventually the hope would be you know if you have a unit you know in um so I'm you know I'm I'm here right outside of Boston in the United States. but so the goal would be if someone's unit captures something in Rhode Island that I would be on the lookout based on a phone app saying like hey, you know Skyhub unit whatever in in Rhode Island captured something um, check your unit or you know go outside or check it out right that that would be kind of an amazing um what's the word that would kind of be an amazing advancement compared to where we are now where we just kind of hope that there are people outside at the same time looking up for this sort of thing
0: now i I want to talk about skyhub because skyhub has partnered with a scientific coalition for UAP studies the scientific community is now taking this phenomenon seriously i'm interested in from your point of view since you work with these people what is the general feeling towards this issue now that it's a lot more public and seems to be confirmed by the the governments that something's going on
1: so first off the so the scientific coalition of ufology actually is made up of a lot of scientifically minded folks who have been part of this field for a long time but maybe have not been as public as, um, some others, I guess is what I would say. It's a great group of people. Um, and, you know, again, kind of the, the level of, the level of background knowledge and expertise that, um, you know, some of those folks have at, in, in this subject is in this subject and also in their own personal subjects is, uh, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, it's great to be able to, it's, it's been great to be able to kind of pick their brains and think about, you know, will have other efforts like this occurred in the past. Where have those pitfalls been, you know, how do you retain sort of scientific rigor or, um, you know, credibility and professional credibility while studying something like this that sometimes gets you a little too close to, you know, um, fringe elements or, or, you know, problematic people or whatever. So That's been really great. And, you know, really, I'm, I'm very, um, I feel very fortunate to be able to work alongside some of those folks and get some of their perspective, especially as we're working with, with Skyhub. Um, I will, I will say though, even amongst people who are not part of this community, let's say who are scientifically inclined, I have been, I have never Let me put it this way. I still have a professional scientific, you know, scientific. I I still have a professional engineering career. Um, I work in very, very different places with different types of engineers and scientists and people kind of every day. And I have never once ran into somebody who is completely negative or I guess I should say completely ridicules the subject in the way that I think a lot of people expect. you know I, I've never had that experience even when I was in graduate school and I started my own podcast when I told people kind of what I was going to be talking about, the you know you you'd occasionally get some people that were like, well why you know why even waste your time with those people or why even do that kind of work? But you know I, I really do think frankly that the scientific community realizes that they have a very serious problem, with communicating science to the public, you know you yourself said even during this interview, you wish you could do or be involved in the sciences, but you don't. You don't like math, or you weren't good at math. That is not a good, you know. That is that is not. Um, that's a shame, and that's something that I think the scientific community has kind of let happen to too many people. You don't need to be good at math to be good at science. Um, They're, they're, you know, some of the best scientists ever have, have not been very good at math. You know, their entire fields of science or ways of doing scientific discovery or um, philosophy of science or just sort of thinking about the way to do good studies and, and things like that. Like there's all kinds of important scientific jobs and efforts and fields that don't require significant mathematics. But we've kind of built up this idea of like, you know, STEM, right? This this big monolith of STEM. So I would say generally, scientists are a lot more open to this idea than they once were. That is absolutely true. I think, frankly, a lot of that has to do with shows like The X-Files and Star Trek and Star Wars. Um, and I think too, it has to do with, you know, people and and governments taking this more seriously than they than they once did
0: yeah at least the um the departments that weren't in the know that thought it was funny because there's still departments that knew exactly what's been going on for quite some time at least there's enough evidence to suggest it but uh, i'm interested in june or july when the first alleged i'm doing air quotes here disclosure uh, because we've been in this position before <laughs> where it's like, ah, oh, no, it's just nothing. Oh, but I, I think they're it, it, it,
1: I still, I still, I, you know, I always joke that I want to get, I want to get like a disclosure 99 t-shirt, you know, or like, a, you know, disclosure 2002. <laughs> like we, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really every you know, year. Uh, yeah. Oh my goodness. Remember
0: disclosure 78. Oh yeah. That was a good year. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's, it's that was a good That's year. That's when Travis Walton
0: came out. That was yeah. great. Yeah. No, it's, but again the the conversation is is switch, and I've heard you mention this in another podcast because I've been stalking you, you know like a creep, but <laughs> <laughs> i listening to this is the podcast you we were saying, well, you know we're like an, you know the eighties generation, you know we've been watching e t and grew up with all this stuff, so obviously we're a different generation than our parents were which were a lot more focused on let's say music and liberation of their Uh, you know, the sixties and and stuff like that. And before that, well, you never talked about UFOs. You'd be put in a mental institution, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's nice to see that the, the problem didn't go away and the generation that came up after our parents, our generation, and I don't know how old you are, but I'm 39 and most people that I talk to uh, either believe in it or have had an incident or know somebody that has seen something. Yeah, I... Enough so that they're they're convinced of it, you know? Um, And I find it's more within our age bracket. My demographic for the podcast is between the age of 40 and 67.
1: I would say, so it's interesting, right? So one thing that we've been, and I've been very outspoken about, is how much older and whiter ufology is than it should be, or than it could be. Because like you said everyone in my every friend i've ever had every person i've ever talked to about this every you know person you you go out for a drink with and you talk to after a conference or after a you know a professional meeting or whatever if they if they find out kind of what i do in my free time you know what i podcast about and what kind of stuff i like to tinker around with in the garage they inevitably will say oh i've got a cousin who saw something or, you know, I saw something or, um, you know, like you said, everyone has had some link to this. And in some ways, I think that's sort of the way, you know, there's a there's a famous. There's a famous work in the philosophy of science called the, on the structure of scientific revolutions, and the author Kuhn basically says that science the way that science changes is it's it's not a instantaneous thing, you know. Bohr didn't uh, Bohr's kind of view of the of atomic structure didn't like just happen one day, and then suddenly we were into quantum mechanics. You know that that didn't happen. Uh, what what happened was a, a current scientific paradigm kept getting proven to be faulty over and over and over again an old way of thinking about the world proved to be wrong until finally there was another way of thinking that was able to account for the old stuff and the new stuff and so a new generation of people essentially were born and brought up with this new way of thinking and suddenly now we're shifted away from uh, we're shifted away from classical mechanics and now we're in the world of quantum mechanics that's true. I, I think Kuhn thinks that was mostly true for the sciences, but I also tend to think that that is just kind of true of all human endeavor or, or opinion. You know, it, it's sort of like every generation has the kind of moral thing or some something that they think is completely wrong and it becomes the fight of the generation. And, you know, the two sides will fight and fight and fight until finally a new generation is sort of brought up where they say, well, you know, yeah, of course, that's the way things should be. And frankly, the generation of people that came after us, I'm in my 30s as well. The generation of people that came after our generation really were, you know, much more advanced, Or I I think maybe not advanced is the wrong word, but definitely different than the views, say, of our generation or the generation before us. And I think that that's definitely true about this other larger question about, are we alone in the universe? I mean, that's tied into all kinds of other questions, right. Of religion and of um, spirituality and of these bigger kind of things, right. What does it mean to be a civilization? What does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to have sort of this, this uh, existential threat, Looming over you of a potential civilization that is so much more advanced that they could wipe you out at an instant, right? Like there, these are huge questions we're kind of playing around with, and we expect the public to just sort of, you know, one picture is going to make us all flip our switch and be like, "Yeah, aliens are real." <laughs> That's not going to happen, right? There's no way it's going to happen. Trust it's me, be I'm looking pro- for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's yeah. it's it has to be a process, but it's it's sort of those slow it is people like yourself and other investigators, people who are chipping away at it over time that I think make the shift to say there really is something to this. Now, again, you know, I personally have, have really, I don't know if there's anything to this, right. I'm kind of along for the ride. I hope to learn something. You know, I think that this is interesting whether or not UFOs exist. Um, But, you know, I do think that the, sort of wider community has done a very good job of, you know, even though there are those who are not really credible and I think are doing a bad job of this, I think for the most part, people have been um, more convincing than not convincing.
0: So far, everybody that I've spoken to, you could tell the heart is there and something happened to them. Like most of the people that, you're the first um, scientist that I've had- technically on here as of late, I've had other researchers, but scientists, somebody with a PhD, I think you're the very first. And that's really what I, I I want is that gap between science and people. We need to understand they both work together. And you mentioned something, Chris, that you touched on something, is the philosophy. You know, like how do we interact with these things? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for a technology? The philosophy behind ufology Meaning that if this is a true phenomenon, if these are entities from either another dimension or another solar system, or both, we probably could be both. I don't know. But if that is the case, how does that affect Homo sapiens, Homo sapien culture, civilization? Look, anybody gets upset these days, they could just take a gun and start shooting people, right? This is the, the, the nature of our species. If we do that to each other, how much more are we likely to try to do that to something we don't even deem as human? We don't even treat each other as human, right? And the innovation of science is really – I mean, the biggest boom in science came from Europe in the 1500s. And because of that boom in science, they had weapons and technology that allowed them to obliterate other people. Since that point, science has always been tied to the geopolitical – interests or military interests like the microwave all that was all military technology until it was old and then it leaked into the public and that's the problem with science and that's why they're not funding things like yeah so I,
1: I yeah i think i think it's a i think you oversimplified a little bit there but i mean of course you know we're, you know you're you were describing 600 years of scientific history.
0: It's going to be a little oversimplified. We
1: only, we only have so much time here listeners, but you know, I do, I do think though that, um, you know, one, one problem, I think that the, the UFO community as an outsider to, and I don't even know if I can really consider myself even an outsider to this community anymore. But even when I first kind of started and I tried to retain my outsider status, but I don't know if that's. I think I'm mostly just working to retain my villain status, <laughs> I don't know if I really maintain <laughs> an outsider Kong, status. But yeah, I, you know, but, um, you know, when I, if you're looking in from the outside to this, one thing I think that's really frustrating is there have been serious scientific and academic interest in this field. There has been. In the past, and it has grown. There are a number of of uh, dissertations written every year on something related to the study of UFOs or ufology. There are um, psychologists still doing studies on you know perception and memory and um, how can you tell a good witness from a bad witness and. All these other things that would be related to this. There are anthropologists and sociologists studying things like new religions and and ancient religions and ancient civilizations, belief structures, and things like that. Right, there's there's a lot of academic and you know work and scientific work that could be part of this community and this effort. But when the UFO world, I think, thinks about what kind of scientists they want or what they think the scientific community getting involved with them should be like, they think that there should be a scientist who builds a UFO. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they think. That's what they want. They want, they want a scientist to come and say, I have the element. I have the, I have the craft. I have the, the answer, you know, but from my perspective, and this is something I've kind of always tried to say to people here is this you know we don't as far as we know we don't have a craft to study we don't even have necessarily a good photo or video of a craft yet you know we we don't have any large data sets on witnesses necessarily that are up to the level of scrutiny that would be required for a for a for a statistical study we don't have any of the kind of stuff that we would need to give to science to say, hey, study this. So in my mind, what would kind of behoove the UFO community or folks that want to get interested in this would be to think creatively about other ways science could get involved in this. You know, but I, I don't think that scientists getting involved. I mean, you know, Skyhub is kind of an interesting example of this because we are kind of engineers and software developers and scientists who have gotten involved in this. And we're, we're not even really training our system to look for UAP, right? We're training our system to look for like birds and airplanes and, and bugs and and things like that. And by being able to tell what all the knowns are, we hope that we will end up with a set of unknown events, but to study an unknown that's that's just a logical impossibility you know to study an unknown you have to look at what is known first and then start to use that to try and pick apart and get to the unknown portions you know even in science like when scientists make a discovery they're not making a dis- you know no scientist just kind of goes into the lab and mixes stuff at random and hopes to make a discovery They're often working on other problems and then a result that they can't explain leads them to something, to another test, right? That that becomes the discovery. Um, So anyways, that whole diatribe aside, um, you know, like you said, the philosophy, the the anthropology, the sociology, uh, heck the economics, right? There's really interesting questions about this sort of community and this group of people and, Um, all kinds of stuff you can answer and study without even getting to the question of whether or not UFOs are here or not, you know, it's, um, it's crazy. Yeah. So anyways, I do think though, and that's the other thing too, I do want to say, you know, one thing I, one thing I do believe that skeptics and the kind of the public should always keep in mind with all of this is that there are, these are real people who have these experiences. Um, these are people who often, you know, I'll never forget the first, the first meeting of kind of any group that was involved with this. Like I ever went to, I, um, I met someone there who had such a scary experience that she was sort of, you know, crying as she recalled it to me. Um, and was you know shaking and upset and, and everything else, I you know I, I don't. If that person was was lying to me, then she is the best liar I've ever met. Now she could have been mistaken, she could have been um, misremembering things. Right, there's all kinds of other things that could have happened to her. But those people, I think, and this phenomena in general, like. You can deny that UFOs are real, but you can't deny that people who claim to have seen UFOs are real, right? Like the people reporting cases are really there. So at the very least, that deserves study. That deserves interest. Um, Whether or not, you know, you want to get into the question of whether or not UFOs are visiting here.
0: Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the history and ufology much, but do you know about uh, Project Mockingbird? Yes. Yes. That did its job fantastically well to ridicule whenever somebody mentions UFO. So much so that you know, for twenty years, every time I mentioned it, little smirks, you know, little laughs would come out. And the public is trained that way. Um, free thought or thinking for the for ourselves is a huge problem. Individually, not a problem, but collectively, we're stupid as hell. Uh, we still haven't gotten past the. there's a a book I was reading called demonic males, which is about apes and and humans, how we're the same. Um, We can show compassion, but we can be absolutely brutal to our own species. And we're like the only species that does that. And I often thought with our species, because violence is so prevalent, if we're dealing with a technology that's far more advanced, but it wasn't built off of the premises of, you know, you know, look at what we have now because of the nuclear bomb right Um, if a society wasn't built around and i'm just asking a hypothetical here but if it wasn't built around war or killing each other that their technology was built differently would that hinder the scientific community as to try to figure out what happened or is science kind of like universal enough that it could be eventually figured out just hypothetically i know it's not your department but i'm just got to ask somebody of science.
1: So, so it's funny, actually, I don't know. The reason I talk about philosophy so much is that I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's great. It, it was my philosophy is my first love. Um, so I think you have an interesting premise for sure, but the pr- Hmm. So, okay, I think it kind of comes down to ultimately what you think the point of war is. I think that from my perspective, I am something of a technological determinist, I guess you'd say, if I had to kind of categorize my my view into one easy to shoehorn (laughs) philosophical argument. So what I mean by that is um, humans basically are animals, like you're saying, right? And so a lot of what we do comes down to trying to survive like any organism. And so I would almost argue that although not all human endeavors today depend directly on survival, right? That's kind of a ridiculous argument, you know? That's like, you know... oh guys learn how to play guitar so they can meet with chicks man like that's a stupid argument
0: it but does help it does I help would, but-, <laughs> but
1: i would i would say yeah. though i would say though that um science the the understanding of nature only div- I, I would argue maybe maybe this isn't really true but i would i would almost think that one could argue that the development or understanding of nature only exists in a civilization where you need to fight or you need to struggle to get more resources to survive. So in other words, right, like if you imagine an alien civilization where they get, you know, they get nutrients in a way like photosynthesis. So they, you know, they just are in the light and they get enough food to survive. I'm not sure that that civilization would ever necessarily evolve to the point of I I don't know if that organism ever evolves you know what I mean they might just stay kind of plant-like forever or in a civilization where if what you're arguing is a civilization where you know they get to the point where their technology is so powerful that they become you know, essentially like a socialist paradise, right? They, they don't need to fight for food anymore. They don't need to fight for goods or services. Everything is provided to them because everything is in abundance. I'm not sure that that civilization would ever want to travel the stars because why would they? You know? Um, or if they did travel the stars, I'm. I guess I would wonder if they would even contact other civilizations. They might just want to come to study. They might just want to come to learn, to travel, just to travel's sake. Um, So I think it's a, it's a really good question. Now the ultimate, that being said, the ultimate question of whether or not we could understand their technology outside of the paradigm of using a technology for war or using a technology for, let's say that kind of natural organism drive we have which is to kind of consume and procreate and everything else i think we probably could guess but i think there's there's a famous quote from a philosopher uh, ludwig wittgenstein who basically said the quote is essentially if a lion could speak we could not understand him and what he what he really means by that is we live such different lives. We have such different sensory input. We are so different cognitively that even if a lion could communicate in the way that we communicate, there might not be a common point of reference. There might not be anything for us to to latch onto with each other because the way of thinking, the brain structure, the kind of mechanisms of thinking – between one organism and another might be so vastly different that it might as well not be able to communicate with us. I would argue that something probably similar would be true of an alien civilization. You know, it's one of the funniest things I think to me about cases where, you know, people say, you know, we got, we got a, we got a crashed alien and we're talking to him at area 51 or whatever. Like, how are you, how, how are you talking to him? Right, like we assume that aliens will have a mouth, no English, and a brain. Yeah, you know, or 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 frankly, have language. They might not have language in the way we have language. Right, the structure of things like a noun, a verb, an adverb. um, Those structures might not have ever developed on an alien civilization. You know, they might not have eyes. They might they might not have sensory organs that we have. So how, you know, if you think about like, I don't, do you have any friends who are, um, you know, I, I have a friend who is colorblind and he can't see the color green and I'll never forget when we were in, in middle school, we were taking the bus to school one day and I was wearing this like kind of dark green t-shirt and he, we were kind of, you know, going back and forth, making fun of each other. And I made fun of something he was wearing. And he said, well, you're wearing like an ugly brown shirt. And I was like, my shirt's not, it's not brown, it's green. Like, what are you talking about? And in speaking to him, we realized that he did not know what the color green was. <laughs> like, he knew some things were supposed to be green, right? Like, in school, you learn, like, you know, a lime is green. But that color wasn't there for him. Now, imagine that a thousandfold. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's... Um, to me, it makes far more sense that if something was coming here to look at us or or whatever, they would study us in the way that we would probably study them, which frankly is the way that we would study animals. You know, it's it's hard to... I don't know. (laughs) It's hard to consider. Even them visiting us is kind of an anthropomorphization. You know, we're assuming that they would want to visit us for, for some reason. Um, You know, I don't know.
0: Well, from what, you know, the data shows from the people that seems to be credible, uh, these entities don't communicate in words. It's more telepathic. And of course, telepathic, telepathy like you can transfer feelings and emotions you can't do that by talking but even if i don't know your language i could make you feel or see things that's a way of communicating that might be more universal than um you know because if you're gonna have different species maybe communication let's say there's a whole community out there i don't know maybe the best way to communicate is on that telepathic level where it's about emotion uh, like, A, I'm not going to hurt you, right? I look weird. I get it, but I'm not here to hurt you. Uh, what th- the other factor is, Dr. Stephen Greer, when he had his original uh, disclosure in 11, or 2011, of course, I was all like sort of hush-hush because of um, just, uh, 2011 was a w- weird year. But uh, what I found is that when they said that most species that people have reported they're all bipeds and they all seem to have two eyes, two arms, somewhat of a semblance of a face similar to ours. It seems to be a prerequisite for these things that are being reported, these entities, is that they're bipeds and that they have human-like features. So that could be a common theme, but I, I like what you said, that if they have nothing to thrive for or to if they have the cognitive ability to make things better, that would have advanced that species. Of course, if they have, you know, let's say four digits, then their mathematics might be by four, not by 10, right? Or by eight, not by 10. Um, There's so many different things that could affect how these things would progress. Now, I'm not huge in math, but is math universal? Or like, would math be, could it be different? if you, like, let's say you have four digits and you come up with a math of four or eight because instead of 10, the way we have it. And as far as we understand, math is the, you know, language of the universe. But would there be different ways of doing math? I know that sounds stupid, but I don't know math and I'm very interested in how that works. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, so... Logically, math should be. Logically, I would argue math should be universal, but math is just a tool. So, although math is universal, physics would not necessarily be universal. And what I mean by that is, although there's some truth to say, you know, the way an atom is composed, the way of representing that might be very different. Um, Does that make sense? Math, math in many ways is like a language um and so the way you describe something might be different but there's nothing there's nothing like color in math right if, if you if you were talking to somebody who was colorblind you would have a really hard time describing what a color is or what a color looks like or what it what it gives you right like what it means but um, math is not like that. It doesn't really matter. So long as this is a very, this is a question that is beyond my pay grade, but I would say, but I would say, I guess I would say though, that so long as the being has the ability to recognize itself and others and other things and has the ability to think Freely of sort of the physical world around it. So, in other words, like imagine and, and conceptualize. So long as that is possible, uh, math and formal logic should be possible. Now that being said, imagine something like a like a a, a civilization that developed that does not have self cognition. Imagine something like a hive mind, like a colony of ants, right? Could a being that doesn't think of itself as itself, um, but only part of a whole, could that being have formal logic or conceptualize things like, you know, having thought, having, uh, having, not thought, but having, um, free thought having kind of thought outside of the bounds of the physical realm. I'm not really sure. Um, and I think that's kind of getting into like AI, uh, you know, AI, what does it mean to be conscious, uh, territory, which is an impossible thing <laughs> will never be answered by us on this uh, show.
0: I kind of worried that the scientific community forgot what it's like to be kids and to be curious and to ask questions and to say, well, you know leaving stuff open to say well nothing is an absolute because we have a problem as a species to always state absolutes like oh we know the state of the world we know what the world is we you know every few hundred years we discover something new all the time that break the foundation of the knowledge that we think we know about our place in the universe and it changes so fast and i think that's probably why the subject of ufology is such a uh, a hard subject for some because it's it's too fast for some people. It's They're not ready for that. They're too stuck in the everyday, you know, going to work, doing the same shit day in and day out. You start talking about, hey, maybe we're being visited by multiple entities and this is like, you know, a beehive of activity globally, not, you know, per spot. But having the interest of the scientific community, like I said, like yourself, even having this conversation with you, is awesome. Like, try having this back in the 80s, right? It would be like, you know, on AM channel at 1 AM in the morning. Welcome back, you perverts to (laughs) UAP studies.
1: (laughs) Well, I think uh, uh, you know, I think that first off, most 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 people have never um, most people have never interacted with a scientist before. You know, most people have never interacted with someone with a PhD really in their lifetime, maybe in high school or, you know. Well, I think, yeah, I think, I think, um, the scientific community has a real problem with communicating to the public. I think that that has become clear, clearer and clearer over the years. But I think, especially now, you know, science has really done a science has never, I guess, sort of concerned itself I suppose with talking to the public I think though that for a lot of time science has been lucky to have the public on its side because we were doing things like say fighting wars and uh discovering new crazy things all the time and everything else but in a in a time period like today where for a lot of people I think science is sort of you know I don't I don't know if cell phones have really made things better for a lot of people. I don't know if, um, you know, computers have, I think, but I don't know if what we've done with computers in the last say 10 years has really made things better for people. Um, So in a, in a, in a world where I think science and scientists are so um, preoccupied with, with publishing and with, with getting patents and writing new things and, 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 you know, all of that, the public communication and outreach part of science um, kind of falls to the wayside. And I think that is a shame. I do think partially the media is to blame for that in some ways, because you have things like articles proclaiming, you know, Oh, we've solved global warming or we've, cured cancer or whatever, and there's hundreds of those a year, and then nothing ever changes because we never did do those things in the first place, right? We never actually did any of those. Um, That's a big problem, I think. But I will say, though, that I think a lot of scientists, you know, the first project I worked on as a grad student was on um, thinking about, or at least we were applying for grants to do stuff like develop um, rebreathers for space travel. You know, there are people pushing the, the boundaries of what's out there, what's possible. Um, there are really smart, really excited, really great people working on this stuff every day. I think one of the problems that the scientific or I think one of the big problems the UFO community has is every time a scientist tries to get involved, they are attacked uh, immediately. Because some of the things, like even some of the things that you've said here, you know, I don't agree with. I'm smart enough and nice enough to be able to talk to somebody I disagree with and still have a good conversation. You know what I mean? Yeah. But um, but not that's a lost
0: art to tell the truth. But that's yeah. what
1: I'm saying. Not not everyone is able to do that. But I also I also, though, do think that, um, again, it is about sort of having empathy and having. The maturity, I guess, to be able to have these conversations and be able to not, um, you know, the prop the problem I think is like let's take for example, um, let's take for example like QAnon, right? There is a huge intersection between say QAnon theories and UFO theories in some cases. Um, a lot of the same kind of thinking, right? Uh, like you know Madame Blavatsky and uh, Lemuria and Atlantis and all that kind of stuff, all of that gets mixed in and mushed up with QAnon for a lot of QAnon believers. Um, because frankly, it's just sort of, you know, it's just kind of, uh, Nazism sort of repackaged in some ways. Um, at least not, you know, occult Nazism in some ways. And so it, and that's really similar to some of the stuff you hear on like ancient aliens, you know, and it, it becomes difficult, I think, for the UFO community to court and talk to scientists because sometimes the stuff they choose to promote or the things they choose to talk about are, are things that have kind of already been discussed or things that have already sort of been settled. You know, one of the big defining factors of a science versus, say, a pseudoscience is science – it, when it works well, learns from failure and learns what doesn't work and then stops doing that thing. But that doesn't really happen in, in ufology. No, you know, no. Um, you know, and anybody, still,
0: anybody, you know, anybody and everybody could call themselves a ufologist, myself included. Right. Well, exactly. Uh, so yeah, there's know, no doctorate. Yeah.
1: Right. So because there's no sort of formal system because there's no, structure to it 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 hasn't really been very good at getting this uh scientific stuff out there but then again let me say this there i think is hope right i mean um well (laughs) let me say it this way i have said on on many other shows and i will say it again and i'll say it until the day i die i'm sure that um in my mind the worst thing for you know, quote unquote, ufology, the not the people who believe, not the people who have had experiences, but the worst thing for the people who kind of exist in the ecosystem of ufology, right? Going to conferences, making money on documentaries, all that kind of stuff. The worst thing for those people will be when the government decides to take this seriously, because what happens when something becomes a serious science is the serious scientists take it over.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Right.
1: Like, yeah. When when ecology went from being just something people did at home on the weekend to, you know, talk about where birds were nesting and whatever. Um, when ecology stopped being something that just anyone could do to being a science, it stopped being something that anyone could do. <laughs> right. It required study, it required tools, it required all these other things. And so I think that as as the hunt for objects in space, or even as the space force or whatever we call it develops through the military and through our governments, um, the place for kind of public ufology that it exists today, that's going to keep shrinking. And I think frankly, the people who would be kind of seriously interested in this and take it seriously will become sort of, pulled away to those other avenues of 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 actual work you know it's it's just what happens um
0: just job creation that's what we're doing just preemptively
1: thinking ahead i mean well, well no but, it, but well really though right it's it it really is you know the difference between you know you have a mom and pop shop where anyone could start a grocery store and so you got a whole bunch of them all over the place and they're kind of you know run differently and some are better than others but whatever and then walmart comes into town right what happens? All those mom and pop shops go away because there's a, a single unified entity to do it. Um, <laughs> you know
0: what's going to happen uh, to Nick me and Pope? You, man, That's what
1: the, I'm worried. We are the mom. <laughs> we are, dude. Forget Nick Pope. What's going to happen to us? We're yeah, the mom and pop yeah. shops. You know, no, but no, but but really though, it, I I do think that it's something to be cognizant of. You know, I mean. Yeah, what's gonna, I mean, what's going to happen to all those guys in Ancient Aliens? They're going to be out of a job. Well,
0: yeah, but the thing is, those guys have been pulling shit out of their ass for a long time. I and mean, anybody's watched that show? Yeah, after I mean, the fourth not, yeah. season, they're just like, ah, Kool Aid made by aliens. Like, come on. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> well,
1: you know it's it's funny actually. Yeah, we have a we have a one of the members of Skyhub just in our general chat today posted a, a kind of a funny video that his his unit took, which was. Um, So this, this unit is out there in, um, it's in Scotland and it's, he, he lives kind of in a normal kind of, you know, residential area and his sky hub unit has a video from this afternoon of somebody sky, sky, like not skydiving, paragliding. Right. So it's someone, it's someone on a paraglider. And, uh, so he posts this in the chat and he's like, what, what the, can you believe this? And I was like, well, it looks like a, like a balloon or something. But he goes, no, it's a paraglider. And he, you know, he says, I've never, I've lived here for six years. I have never seen a paraglider here in my entire life. Huh. The skies above us are weird. We don't look like we, you know, if, if that, if there's a person sky gliding above his house right, or in his neighborhood, I guess I should say. That's either a, a, the most rare occurrence ever. So, you know, you tell your friend, I saw a sky, I saw a, a you know, a sky glider today or a, whatever, a hand glider today. You know, oh, no way. You know what I mean? Oh, you got a video, you got a picture. Well, crap, man. I wasn't ready for it, right? Like like what you're saying. Um, or those kind of, those hand gliding events have been happening this whole time he's lived there and he's just never looked up in the sky enough to check it out, Right. Either way, that's interesting data. So I do think it's, uh, I do think, or I hope, I guess I should say, because I, I, you know, again, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to capture anything. I don't know. Um, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I do think it'll be, regardless, very interesting what we collect. Very interesting what we find. And uh, and yeah, man, I'm just, I'm excited to see it happen. I'm excited to see this this effort grow a little bit.
0: I th- I think you should just wait it out. Just another month or so, water cooler conversation with the guys. Just slip it in. Maybe you guys should take a couple of units down to Skinwalker Ranch and just test out the units. That would be great promotion, wouldn't it? Taking that stuff down. That to, would be very that cool. That would be really it would cool.
1: Be, it would be something cool. I'm. I would be. You know, it's funny the Skinwalker the Skinwalker Ranch story is one that. um, You know, again, I, I guess I don't. You know, I don't know how to feel about it. I suppose, but I would be. I would maybe be a little bit hesitant about the status of our cameras based on what what <laughs> whatever is on the range has done to other cameras. <laughs> no, but I'm I'm kidding. I think it would be fine. I think it'd be I think it'd be a lot of fun, and it would be really cool to have them out there if we could get them there. But you know, um, at this point, we're just gonna keep kind of keep uh, keep on keeping on. Well, and just keep plugging away and building. Yeah,
0: it. and what I would encourage anybody, whether you're an investigator. couch sleuth or or, or whatever, because even if you're a person that's, let's say, not going to pick up the mantle and start investigating UFOs, but you want to contribute, getting one of these things mounted on your house just collects data. You don't even have to do anything. I thank you so much for your time, my man. Um, Like I said, you're the first scientist that I've had on here. I've got to pick your brain, which to me was uh, an absolute delight. So... Uh, Where can people find more about Skyhub if they want to start getting uh, the equipment or maybe even funding the project?
1: Yeah, so head on over to uh, skyhub.org. There you can find all of our kind of info about what we're doing. Um, You can join our chat, um, which is linked there on the website. That'll get you access, frankly, to all of us on the team, as well as the kind of pretty shockingly large community of people we've gotten to to kind of come in and join and, and talk to us here. Um, you can download the source code to play around with it if you'd like. And of course you can always support us on Patreon or, um, just, you know, come give a, come give a kind word. You know what I mean? We're, we're, uh, it's a labor of love and we're really always happy to hear from folks in the community. So please do come on board and, and come talk to us. So
0: you definitely got the endorsement uh, of this podcast for sure. Like,
1: <laughs> listen, anytime I can come on and explain some stuff, please, please do feel free uh, ask me again, and, and it was it was a big pleasure. I thank you and your community.